0: Hi, this is Panel Beta, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and wellbeing. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.
1: What's on today's show? Well, first up, who the hell am I? I'm Dr Doolittle. And I'm, as I say, I'm alone in my little studio in the era of social distancing. Panel is here. He's a couple of studios, one or two studios across, but there's so much reflection in the glass, I can barely see him, but bear with us. We'll touch base with Panel Panelbeater in a minute. We've got a few interviews on the show this morning, all distance of course. We've got a special guest, Professor Rod Sinclair, who is a professor of dermatology at Melbourne Union. He's going to talk about the impact of COVID on the old s- science and health of the skin. We've also got Dr Spock, who a lot of you will know is a professor of paediatric infectious diseases, and uh, we've said to him, come on in, come in virtually over the telephonic device, and give us all the pros and cons of going back to school. And, of course, we've also got CyberSue. And, again, a few of you may know, CyberSue is one of the experts in online health in Victoria. She set up a lot of the services in a couple of the very big hospitals. So she's going to give us a little bit of an update on where online health, telehealth, all that stuff's up to in this particular era. We're going to have a couple of songs. We're hopefully not going to have any technical problems. Um, where will I begin? Where are we at? Where are we at? Well... COVID-wise, we're doing bloody well, really. Um, I looked at the figures on Friday, so, you know, I'm I'm about 36 hours behind. But still, there were 7,150 cases in Aussie, 103 deaths, which is still about 1.4%, which we've been sitting on our death rate for quite some time, which is quite amazing in comparison to other countries that are as high as 10%. Our hospitals haven't got it all overrun. We remain on somewhere between about uh, 50 and 100 new cases a week in Australia. We expect the odd outbreak. Nearly everyone's recovered. We've got about 500 people in the country who are known to have COVID right now. So that's about one in every 50,000 Australians, just to give you some perspective. Um, restrictions reduce again in Victoria tomorrow. They reduced over the last week in various states. In Victoria, though, from tomorrow, 20 people are allowed in homes, 20 people in outdoor gatherings. Overnight stays are allowed, 50 50 people at funerals, cafes, restaurants, pubs for dining up to 20 people, auctions reopened with up to 20 people. If you're in that sort of uh, mood, I'm not. Uh, swimming pools reopened. In fact, mentioning uh, Dr. Professor Rod Sinclair, he and I are going for a swim on Tuesday night, and we had to book a lane each at our uh, at our local swimming hole. And the next reductions begin on about on in Victoria on June 22, and we're expecting cinemas and pubs to open then with up to 50 people. So, where are we at emotionally? Well, you know, I work in a big hospital, as you know, Peter Mack, and I uh, have contact with lots of people, see lots of patients. You know, my sense is there's far less anxiety. I wonder what you think. Some people are also talking a lot about the benefits of isolation. There's a lot of people who are actually quite apprehensive about coming out for a couple of reasons. One, they're nervous about re-entering the community and uh, how they're going to avoid COVID. But also, a lot of people are talking about how they've felt much more peaceful during isolation. They slowed down. A quieter time. A lot of people are calling it a reflective time. Um, Of course, some people are anxious that we aren't going fast enough. So we've got that, you know, some don't want to come out. Some are saying it's not fast enough. Um, There's been a bit of a shift in thinking probably, probably towards the economy and world politics, certainly in the news. Of course, Trump and China and Hong Kong have been creating a lot of anxiety. Um, And the news, my sense is, I don't know about you, but my sense is the news is drifting back to a little bit of a pre-COVID era where polys are starting to fight, avoid truthful answers, regress to ideology. I don't know. It's still been pretty good. There's still some positive signs. And, you know, just to finish up this little uh, intro, you know, four weeks ago when I did my last intro on Triple R, I asked the question of what should we... What should we be more focused on at this particular point in time? The virus, number one. Economic depression and downturn, number two. Big Brother-like controls on our movements that are occurring, you know, in some places. And, of course, international strife, war and the blame game. And with what's going on right now, I just wonder where we're all at. I'm not sure where I'm up to. I'm just raising it as a point of reflection. But let's get on with the show. Hey, uh, panel leader, can you hear me, my friend?
0: I sure can. Sorry, yeah, I was just doing the thumbs up. Uh, it's not a not a visual medium. This radio thing, it turns out. <laughs> it um, turns out yeah. it's
1: hard for me to see you because <coughs> I've got lots of reflections. But what about you? What are your reflections right now? Where do you think we're up to?
0: I'm I'm increasingly all over the shop. I think I I've handled most of this time reasonably well. When I hear about other stories, um, for other experiences of other people. But the last you know ten days um something has shifted in my you know small brain um and it's and it 's starting to really get to me i can 't put my finger on it but i'm a, I'm uh, my thinking is a lot more foggy um my uh concerns about uh what 's about to happen, not what has happened but what 's about to happen uh, are, are increasing and um and i'm 'm perhaps getting some anxiety around that on a on a like on a fancy pants, intellectual level, but also on a personal level. Um, And I think that's all coming to a pointy bit at the moment. Um, Yeah, yeah, I've got the seatbelt on.
1: I uh, I hear you loud and clear. I've got the same sense. I was thinking to myself, you know, in the seatbelt analogy, I was thinking to myself, to myself just the other day, you know, that I've really, we've really got to strap ourselves in. We're in for a fair ride here. Mm. You know, and I was doing quite a bit of reading at various times about the Spanish flu and various other pandemics. We have one every 10 to 30 years. I was reading about different ones and, um, you know, some of the challenges. And I was trying to balance that versus, I guess, you know, when things are looking dodgy in the world, a lot of us, you know, we're quite, we're nervous. We're a nervous species, mm. humans. We're an anxious species. We often... Um, you know, we you know, we often think of the most fearful worst-case outcomes. And I'm thinking back, too, to things like um, uh, the turn of the century and uh, what was that? Oh, Y2K bug. You yeah. know, we <laughs> often go to worst-case scenarios. And so yeah. I was saying to myself, is this just my mind flicking to a worst-case scenario, worrying about Hong Kong, worrying about China, worrying about what's going on in the US? Yeah. Or is this realistic anxiety and i don't know too i'm up in the air as well
0: i tried to introduce a concept uh last week don't know if you caught it uh the distinction between uncertainty and risk
1: i did and
0: and uh risk is uh something that we can manage we don't it doesn't mean everything's good um and i wanted i want to get and i feel like i'm dealing more with uncertainty than i am with risk and i think um that's the case for a lot of what's going on at the moment
1: yeah, I guess. I guess, I, I, you know, I did listen. I listened to the podcast a few days ago, and it was a great show, by the way. Um, but uh, it's uh, Yeah, I, I see. My area, psychiatry, I guess. Perhaps incorrectly, perhaps arrogantly, we consider ourselves sort of risk experts because yeah. we're constantly balancing. The one we're balancing, of course, is suicide risk, which is actually an incredibly rare risk. But you're balancing clinical scenarios all the time. And it's really hard to work in the sort of the risk domain, but you sort of have to. And it always strikes me, it's like there's multiple highways in front of you, each carrying a certain percentage of different things happening. And you're trying to choose the best at all times, knowing that new highways in front of you are constantly opening up. It feels a bit like that with COVID at the moment that, you know, depending on how we come out of isolation, depending on what happens with our economic stimulus measures, depending what happens with uh, what, you know, treatments, vaccines and stuff, there's all these different risks that we just can't weigh up. And so that overwhelming sense of uncertainty and and it it just sort of hangs in the air.
0: Yeah, I'm much more comfortable with dealing with risk than I am uncertainty. Um, And uh, from the conversations I've been having around the place, it seems that that's not an unusual, um, you know, way of of dealing with things you know we we accept that we don't know exactly what's going to happen but if it's risk then we can make decisions that manage it but if it's uncertain we and you know and as uh, Dr Nick and I um, spoke about last week you know this word that just keeps coming up in the meeting unprecedented you know it's been overused but ultimately it actually is meaningful if we recognize that we don't have a replication of this to draw on we've got pandemics in the past as you as you've mentioned um but there are there are things that are unique to this pandemic at this particular time in in world history
1: yeah, couldn't agree more. I guess we have to, in some sense, turn into a whole lot of mini Rumpelstiltskins and weave uncertainty into risk. So we have to mm. somehow coalesce our uncertainty into what the various yep. risks of the various situations are so we can me- feel more comfortable making informed decisions about where we head, yeah. I guess. Hey, anyway, I reckon we should get on with the show. I'm going to do a quick bit of spruiking first. Did you know R has a podcast called Shrink the Virus? It's actually myself and uh, good friend Rob Seltzer, also known as Malpractice, Practice, uh, talking about various aspects of the psychology of life in the pandemic. Jump on the R website, look up Shrink or Shrink the Virus and check out what we've been doing. Last week, we interviewed Raf Epstein, the week before that, uh, Director of WeHi, Doug Hilton. Uh, we've got a fantastic um, uh, obstetrician and fertility expert, Kate Stern, coming up this this Monday we did the interview yesterday, so if you get a chance, check it out.
2: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Hey. Uh-
1: We've got Professor Rod Sinclair, who is a very old mate of mine, funnily enough. We actually went to school together, believe it or not. We even lived together when we were junior doctors. And I've interviewed Rod many times in many places over the years. And uh, he's back with us today. Let me just tell you who he is, just so in case you don't know. He's a Professor of Dermatology at Uni of Melbourne. He's Director of Epworth Dermatology. He's past president of all sorts of things, like the Australasian Society of Dermatology Research, various other things. He uh, runs a big practice called Sinclair Dermatology in East Melbourne. And uh, we got him on to have a bit of a chat about uh, where things, is up, things are up to in his world and COVID and anything else that comes up. G'day, Rod, are you there? Yes, I am. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. And I was saying before we came on that, you know, with swimming pools reopened, you've booked us for a swim on Tuesday night. So we're going to be swimming in separate lanes. We had to actually book it instead of just turning up, shoving on our togs and jumping in the pool. It's going to be nice though well, to get back in the water.
3: Oh, absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. Just to, just to have a semblance of normality, is, you know, as much fun as the isolation is, I think uh,
1: we all miss getting out. Oh yeah, my word. Hey, so what's been the impact of COVID on your practice? Tell us what, what it was like. Well, it's really interesting. We've started to
3: do a lot of teledermatology. So that's where we have video consultations with the patients. And dermatology is an incredible, incredibly visual specialty. So we like to look at a rash, we like to touch it, feel it, and uh, and really get a sense of how that rash fits in with the rest of their skin elsewhere over the body. So we've lost a lot of our cues and signals, and we've had to really learn a new skill set of how to make a diagnosis down the video. And it's it's been, it's been interesting, and I think it's actually been surprisingly good. And so it's not optimal. We'd still prefer to have a patient in front of us being able to talk to them. And, uh, and, and see their rash but it has actually worked out very well and it uh, was really probably at its busiest uh, the video consultations in around about April and now people are actually starting to come back to the doctor and they're starting to enjoy the outing. So the idea of having a doctor's appointment as a, as a reason to get out of isolation and to get out and about, people are starting to embrace that now whereas just a month ago everyone was a little bit frightened to go outside.
1: How quickly did you adapt? Because I know we were, um, Dr. Nick, one of our regulars on radiotherapy, was talking last week and he's mainly been doing the telephone, not online, whereas you obviously want to do online because you want to see the person, you want to see the rash. How quickly did you get used to the technology of online stuff? Um, well, it was, we were
3: really lucky in that we just, one of, our, one of our senior practice managers, her husband worked in the hotel industry. And just before everything started to lock down, we'd had um, a catch-up with uh, with a group of people and he'd told us that he'd been retrenched from his work in the hotel industry and he was now looking for a job and he had a, a, a strong customer service background. And I went to bed that night and I woke up the next morning and I thought, we actually need somebody who can coordinate a whole change in our practice because what was happening already was that a lot of staff were calling in sick because we told them to stay home if they had a runny nose or a cold. And, and so our practice managers were all moving on to the front line and we actually had no strategic direction. And so the ability to employ somebody new who had no other responsibilities other than to coordinate the transition was actually fantastic. And so we were, we were incredibly lucky in that we were probably well ahead of the game uh, in that we were, we were ready to go. And then as soon as the school the schools closed, a number of our doctors had to stay at home to to look after their own children, and we also felt that we needed provision just in case one of the doctors got a runny nose or a cold, not COVID. Even with a runny nose, you couldn't come to work. Yeah,
0: it's.
3: And so we, we, Yeah, so it was. So we had to start the provisioning, and we, we got in there very early. And for us, I, I think we were we were very lucky in that we were proactive and um and and made the adaptation and uh, and it's now. Now, almost back
1: to normal. I don't know if I imagined this, but I had it in my head that you also had some instructions on your website about how to take a photo of your rash to send in as well for higher quality pictures. Did I imagine that, or did you tell me that over a beer at some point?
3: Yeah no, no we did we did do that, and so one of the things that we found is that a lot of a lot of people just were sending in photographs off their iPhone, they were slightly out of focus, a little bit blurred. And so if we were having the video consultation, we'd often contact them beforehand. We'd tell them, um, you know, we'd get the... the our, our photographers would get a sort of a, a background from them and then explain to them how we wanted the photographs taken. But when we were doing the the video, we also had some really high-resolution photographs to just really help us improve the accuracy of the, the diagnosis. And and then the other thing that we, we also did is we, we actually used some of your material. So you wrote an article at one stage on... On helping people get through the isolation and how to manage this, and and what to do if they got a cold. And we actually had that posted up on our website as well for for patients who were coming in to, to have a look at. And the other thing that we did is we we started very early to institute a program where anybody who arrived in our building had their temperature taken, they were interviewed by a nurse before they came up in the in the lift, and uh, we gave them gloves. And you know when we had them available, we gave them surgical masks. We had all our staff wearing surgical masks, and that. And That gave our staff a lot of comfort. They they felt very vulnerable in the you know particularly in the early days, and it also gave the patients a lot of comfort that uh, that we were taking this seriously, and that uh, you know they felt they probably felt a lot safer coming to, to our doctor's office than they did going to the supermarket because in the in the early days it wasn't entirely clear how seriously you had to take it, whether you could go out, what you could do, and um, so I think all of those things together, you know, really, really does help people just feel comfortable and and confident.
1: Yeah, it sounds very similar to a lot of the stuff that some of the hospitals did. And every place seemed to handle it a little bit differently. So, you know, I think that proactive, you know, getting on the front foot approach is fantastic. Hey, uh, Paddle Beater. Yeah. Did you want to jump in with a question?
0: Oh, I've got so many questions for, um, for Rod. Um, I don't know where to be. I, I, it probably behoves to at least ask one COVID-related question, but hopefully I get a chance to ask a non-COVID. Um, Rod, um, hand washing's been a big deal um over COVID we've been uh, told to get into a routine uh with hand washing um and I know you've been bouncing around the media a little bit on this but I wonder if you could share with our listeners some of the implications with the approaches people have been uh taking with hand washing in relation to you know just soap and water people have been getting onto the essential oils and and so on and so forth from a dermatologist point of view what's going on there
3: well There's a number of different ways to wash your hands and sometimes just washing with water alone will will keep them clean but if you really want to protect yourself against the virus then you've probably got to combine it with soap and an alternative to washing with water and soap is to use the alcoholic hand sanitizers. Now one of the problems we see as dermatologists is that a lot of our patients have hand eczema and if you've got hand eczema then one of the the problems you have washing your hands is that the, the, the soap and the, the sanitizers will either sting when you put them on the broken skin of your hand dermatitis or they'll aggravate the hand dermatitis and make it much worse. Mm. And so we had a number of our patients. And, and then the other thing, of course, is that if, you, if your skin is broken, then it's probably uh, another portal of entry for the virus to get into. So we tend to yeah. think of the benefit of hand washing is to stop transferring the virus from your hands to your nasal passages or your, or your mouth. Uh, but if your skin's broken on the hands, then the virus can probably get straight in. Now, whether, whether that's an important portal of infection or not, no one knows. But it was a, it was a concern, particularly in the, in the early days. Yeah. But, but if you've got broken skin, then the hand sanitizers, which are usually a little bit gentler than soap and water, often sting on the cracks and, and broken skin. And so people were sort of caught in a catch-22. So the key thing, I think, is anybody who's got sensitive skin or vulnerable skin is that every time you wash your hands, dry them carefully and then put some moisturizer over the top. And that will help. And then if you do have a hand dermatitis, really treat it uh, quite aggressively with the, the, the steroid ointments. And it's probably an area where you want to be using a little bit more steroid ointment than you normally do, just to really get your skin in good shape so that it can withstand all the regular hand washing that you need to do to protect yourself against the COVID.
1: Yeah. Hey Rod, talking of being in the media another thing I saw you in the media this week it was in The Age I think, it was an article about l- hair lice and you were making a bit of a public call for people to be particularly vigilant what was that all about?
3: Well, social isolation or the, or the physical isolation it's is probably more physical than social but the physical isolation has been really useful for stopping the transmission of a whole range of infections and so this year the influenza numbers are really down, common colds are really down because of all the all the processes and procedures that we've been taking but another thing that's also been down is headlines. Now headlights normally runs in epidemic proportions through the schools and because there hasn't been that much contact between the kids there hasn't been anywhere near as much transmission and so uh you know what we were saying is that we've got an opportunity with the, the headlights being isolated individual families that if before if, if the kids go back to school if all the parents were to just check through their kids do a combing with the conditioner, so the people with school-age kids will all know about this and how to how to check the head lice. But if we checked for the head lice and treated it before the kids went back to school, then we've actually got a chance to really eradicate another public health concern, which is which is the head lice.
1: It's really quite amazing, you know, because it, it, it's really so, – social distancing is really a uh, war on all in, in, infections, so to speak. And so it's going to be amazing to see the different rates of these things. So essentially what you're saying is this is a window of opportunity for a relatively simple thing. Check your kids' headlights. We could really make a major impact on uh, what's something that's normally at epidemic proportions. Another thing I wanted to just check in on with, with you, you do a heck of a lot of research. You have a whole Clinical Research Arm – has there been much impact on that for you? Has it been, you know, you're still able to be been able to carry out your various research projects with everything going on?
3: Well, it's it's actually quite interesting because we do a lot of uh, clinical trials on behalf of international pharmaceutical companies. And these are trials that are run in maybe 30, 50, 70 centres around the world. And a lot of these... Medications that we're testing are breakthrough medications. So we've got breakthrough medications for eczema, breakthrough medications for psoriasis. We've got new medications for hives. And we've got a whole range of these new treatments that are coming through development. And every time one of these companies invests in developing one of these treatments and going through the the, the regulatory guidelines, it costs them between $1 and $2 billion. So they've got a huge investment in these trials. And it's not as though you can suddenly just stop them dead in the middle. And so the trials that were ongoing, we had to basically, we had to monitor the patients very carefully. We uh, even looked at doing home visits so the patients didn't necessarily have to come into our clinic. Unfortunately, what we found is that these new breakthrough medications didn't pose an increased risk of coronavirus. Now we didn't know that at the start, but we had to actually develop global registry so that the doctors from around the world could record their patients on these treatments who developed the coronavirus, and we had input from doctors in Italy and Spain, particularly in the early days, and then, and then France and Germany and England and, and now America. And so we're building up a very big database, but it was a little bit uncertain at the start as to how it was going to go, and so we're very lucky that it, it didn't impact on coronavirus. But one of the things that we had to do is we had to stop recruiting, so we didn't take new people into the clinical trials until it was, until it was really clear that uh, it was going to be safe to do so.
1: And have you fired them back and, up now,
0: then?
3: Yeah, so they're all firing back up now, but the the laboratory research tended to go well. We we actually had to have two teams, so we had one team for one week, and then the other team would stay at home, and then they would alternate each week, and so that actually slowed down a lot of the, the laboratory-based research. But I think, you know, under the circumstances, you know, the fact that we were still able to, to progress it and do any at all was uh, was very good. But uh, the, the other thing that's actually also normalised out of the the video consultations and things like that, is that we've learned that, that some of the things that we do... So dermatology, obviously, a very visual specialty, and it's really important to see the patient, for the initial visit, make the diagnosis. But when they've, you've got the diagnosis and you've started on a program of treatment, a lot of the, the follow-up can actually be done by telephone or video. So we're actually starting to, to learn how to utilise those technologies a bit better. And so for our country patients, to save them having to drive in for you know, sometimes an hour or two each way is going to be a great bonus. And I think think we'll probably end up keeping a lot of these these innovations that were forced on us by the circumstances and uh, and incorporate that into our regular practice.
1: Yeah, it's the silver linings. Hey, Rod, we're going to have to wind up. It's been fantastic uh, having you on and getting the update of where things are up to from a dermatological perspective. Do um, little. Can oh, I yep, just ask, course, um, Rod,
0: uh, even, a, even if it turns out just being a yes-no, Rod, because I know we're under the pump time-wise, um, the general public's literacy around dermatology was expanded recently when uh, Prince Andrew was interviewed, and uh, having a uh, psychiatrist and a dermatologist together in the same room, Prince Andrew was claiming that as a result of his Falklands War trauma, um, he couldn't sweat. Now, between the two of you, can you, uh, can you clear this up once and for all? Is, it, is this plausible at all?
1: You go first, it's, Rob.
3: Well, it, it's not in any of the textbooks I've ever read, any of the journal articles I've ever read. So if it is true, then it's a
0: new syndrome is the, is the first first ever. N you know, equals one.
1: Yeah, I tried to look it up, Bob. Um, panel beta and uh, you know certainly I tried to link it to you know when people have gone through trauma they've often had like I think it's cortisol an overload of cortisol that changes a whole lot of their physiology and I have heard some similar things to it but I couldn't find anything specific but I must admit I didn't do like a a scientific literature search I was literally you know I don't know sitting around with my phone thinking is that a real thing and you know quick google I couldn't find anything specific either but it was a fascinating one yeah it was a fascinating one
2: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how.
1: Um, Cyber Sue is a nurse and she's had a long history in setting up a lot of the online health stuff. And we've often talked to Cyber Sue, it's part of the reason she's called Cybersue Sue, um, about these sorts of things. And, you know, and we were... And and Cybersue and I were chatting during the week, having listened to uh, Dr Nick talking about how he'd mainly used the telephone. Um, and I wanted to, we wanted to just sort of talk a little bit about, you know, what's been going on, the impact and everything uh, um, of COVID on her, you know, what's really been a three or four year um, career path, if not longer, five years. Um, so Cybersue, what are your thoughts? What has been the impact overall?
4: Well, I mean, I think that Rod, what a, what a, I mean, he's just done the talk. Um, you know, how's he? <laughs> he stole some of it. <laughs> He has stole my thunder. I mean, the way that they've kind of managed to integrate um, using telehealth and adapting and the way he just ended that with saying how they're going to keep some of their practices moving forward. This is the way I see that. Um, you know, it's the same as opportunity with um, eradicating headlines. This is an opportunity for us to really turn around the way we deliver health care. Um, and, you know, right when COVID was in the very, very peak of crisis and let's say about March, um, in hospitals where they had the infrastructure in place, um, and that they had the systems in place, telehealth went up something like 2,000%. Wow. So, yeah. So, you know, hospitals where they were maybe doing 15 15 or so appointments a day shot right up to some 300 telehealth appointments. And whilst it's still settling back down a bit now, it's still way up. Can I ask you, Cyrus,
1: does it piss you off? Does it irritate you? I've got to tell you why I say this. As you know, (laughs) I allocated 70 grand in my department. Um, a couple of years yeah. ago to try and transform everyone into the world of telehealth. And, you know, I it was, know. really felt like dragging them, kicking and screaming. The uptake wasn't that great. And then all of a sudden, yep. you know, virus, bang, one week later.
4: I know. <laughs> Does it annoy
1: the hell out of you that, you know, why couldn't they have got the message
4: a couple of years. Ago. I know. You know what? It doesn't bother me. I love it. I think it's just fabulous. Like all of that resistance for years and years and years, and suddenly it's ever so possible. And um, no, I think it's great. And um, I'm really happy for the people that are still um, working in that field. And I love seeing it around where I'm working with. You know, everyone's on, on on video, or they're just actually just getting on and doing it. Yeah.
1: Hey, uh, what did you think of Dr. Nick's talk about how he's mainly using the phone rather than online? What were your thoughts on that?
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I, I think it's an important point because video is still harder than just picking up the phone and calling somebody. And there's the, the technologies, I mean, telephone and video and seeing people in person, they're all just three different ways of um, basically avoiding or needing travel, seeing someone, and there's, it's fit for purpose. And. At the end of the day, it needs to be integrated into services. And Nick's a metro GP. He hasn't had um, fu- uh, he hasn't had funding to do to, to use telehealth. And if you look at Rod. He had a person dedicated to uh, building that model in his de- in his dermatology practice. And I think that as a health service, we're going to have to um, really invest in embedding that infrastructure um, to make it easy. It's still just not quite easy enough. So um, if Nick was working in the country, I think he'd probably be more using video because he'd just be a bit more used to it
0: hey yeah. cyber sue uh, panel Beater here. great to um, be speaking with you um, hey, there 's so Beater. much going on with telehealth at the moment, and in my mind there's a there 's two or three different paradoxes going on yeah. you 've pointed to uh, the the uptake um, a moment ago uh, people yeah. co- using uh, telehealth either by phone or um, internet, which is you know fabulous that people have been able to to jump in on that but there 's also emerging evidence that people aren 't presenting to use the Mm. the clinical language uh to their doctors for all sorts of things so we've got a a conversation with dr sharma coming up in a couple of weeks where we're looking at how people aren't turning up to hospitals and there may be some lag in diagnosis of emerging issues um i'm Mm. wondering if this is something that's crossed your desk in any way
4: Yeah, I mean, and you're you're absolutely right. I think this is going to be a consequence of COVID that we're going to see for a long time to come as people that have been avoiding going to the doctor because they're too scared. And this is where there can be a real turning around of the way we access healthcare, care, um, people don't need to necessarily travel to see their doctor. What it means is that we can have more regular follow-up. We can see the doctor more often than we always had to travel, which just isn't always possible with or without COVID. Um, look at country patients, you know, the skin cancer rates in rural Victoria and the delays in accessing and seeing a dermatologist and using this video technology can really help to actually mm. improve access to healthcare.
0: Yeah, I think the corollary to that is the digital divide in Australia. One of the things that COVID has revealed is, you know, two and a half million people, about 10% of Australians, don't have access to the internet. And um, Uh it's great that um, Dr Nick's been able to talk about people choosing the phone rather than necessarily going Uh online, but um, it has exposed two and a half million people without it. Um, And Uh we were talking about the funding out of the package uh, uh, that came out, 48 million um, last week. And it's all directed to service providers, so um, mm. GPs, etc., and hospitals and so on, being able to uh, establish the facilities that they can deliver the service. But nothing's going to enabling people who can't access it in the first place. Um, is there something that you're seeing on your agenda in that regard?
4: Um, I think that's true, and it's, it, you're absolutely right. 101, like you need to have roads to travel, you need the internet to access video, um, and also um, an integrated s- simple system that whether, you, whether you're computer competent or not, or, you know, most people have a TV in their house. Is there a way that we start to look at using other technologies that everybody already has um, to improve that equity of access and make it truly available for everybody? Um yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. We can't just be putting the money only to the providers. So where do you see us being in the
1: post-COVID world? What do you think will will happen?
4: Well, what I hope is going to happen is that I think that if we're willing, we actually have a tipping point here, and we can actually really change the way that our healthcare is delivered. Um, using telehealth, using remote monitoring, using a heap of these tech tools that have been around for a long, long time, um, the tech is nothing new. I know that um, the health minister is looking at funding tally house um, after COVID. Um, that's those some of those funding models have to stay. They weren't there before COVID, and they were a barrier. Um, I'm hoping that there's going to be that funding going into integrating into our health services, so that it's easy um, and. Recognising that video and the phone are just tools, but they're really, really important. We can start really making care person-centred rather than so doctor-centred. Yeah. That's what I'm hoping for.
1: Did you want to ask something, Kent? I
0: heard oh, no, I was just going thumbs up on that uh, final sentiment there, um, little.
1: Hey, Cyber Sue, so, uh, is life back
4: to normal for you yet? Are you back at work and all that sort of stuff? Um, I'm a little bit back at work, a little bit working from home. Um, I I'm one of those people who quite likes the isolation. <laughs> um, <laughs> my friend told me I was weird for
1: that, but um, <laughs> I think it's turned out we're all a bit weird. Yeah, sorry, keep going. Fair enough. Yeah, hey, it's good to no. talk to you. I reckon. Yeah, I'm hoping, you too. I've got a, I'm sort of half. I'm pretty, I'm quite confident that by our next show we come on um, every four weeks. That hopefully we'll be in the studio together. That would be wonderful. Hey, it's so nice to talk to you. Thanks for uh, phoning in and uh, keeping us up to date with your world.
2: Thank you, Panel Peter, and
4: thank you, Dr. Doolittle. Lovely to chat.
2: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how.
1: Well, let me tell you who Dr Spock is. Dr Spock, I can hear noise in your background too, like Cyber Sue. Are you having a party also?
5: Um, Well, I'm just dropping my daughter at uh, the train. She's going off to Gippsland for work. <laughs> but I'm running back to sit in my car
1: quietly. It's the world of multitasking in, uh, you know, because we've been talking about online health. I don't know if you caught it, but it's sort of ex- it's extended to everything. And whilst on the one hand we've got quiet time to reflect, we're also at risk of, of incredible multitasking all the time because of this very thing. You know, you can do your radio whilst you're on the run. I've actually done. I've actually talked to patients in my car. Um, you know, uh, doing my phone consults, um, which is a little bit weird. But you know, where I'm been squeezed in and I've had to you know I've got messages pleasuring these three patients and I'm running from one place to another um you know it the multitasking's quite amazing are you are you enjoying it or finding it too stressful uh Spocky?
5: Well look I'm I I'm finding that I'm getting a lot done and it's fair to say and I sort of enjoy some reasons where I can uh, not engage 100% please anyone who's uh, been in an important meeting with me, ignore that, and be able to do other stuff. But I am exhausted by
1: the end of the day. It is funny, though, because a lot of the meetings, and I'm sure it's the same for you as it is for me, a lot of the meetings, our presence is only maybe required for a small amount of time, but we have to be there listening. So, you know, I'll go to a lot of meetings, which might go for an hour and a half, where all sorts of hospital things are discussed, maybe to do with building, um, what's going on with, you know, local government, what's going on with different departments. And there might just be one five-minute period in the whole meeting where it turns. Psychosocial oncology, my area, where I have to do input now. In the re- in the pre-COVID world, I'd take an hour and a half plus preparation, travel time. Whereas now I can log on, I can be doing my email, reading reports with just one ear tuned to it. Um, and when my bit gets there, um, yeah, I've found found it incredibly more efficient. I don't know about you.
5: Yeah, look, it's been efficient, but the trick is, of course, not to find that. Uh they're saying, uh, Dr. Doolittle, Dr. Doolittle, we just asked you a question. What, 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 what do you think? Yeah, there is a little was, bit of that. I was in the middle of reading that report. <laughs> what are they asking?
1: But people are just apologising <laughs> and saying, I'm sorry, I was tuned out for a moment. What is it you're asking me? Hey, anyway, yeah. we better get you onto your topic at hand today. So for people who, uh, I was saying at the start of the show, Dr. Spock in his secret real life is, is a professor in an infectious disease paediatrician. Um, and so we wanted to ask you today, you're coming on to talk about schools. So first up, you know, and I saw you wrote an article that I read this week. Um, did, first up, did every country close schools or were we one of the, you know, how many of, how many did it, do you know?
5: Yeah, look, um, many, many did. In fact, I think there were almost, uh, around the world, almost 200 countries um, implemented countrywide closures and there were many more than sort of regional closures. So it was, you know, huge, huge, 200 countries. I don't know how many countries there are in the world, but it certainly uh, was a big proportion of the world was had closed their schools. So that, that was a big deal.
1: Did any countries not close, do you know? Do you know of countries that specifically didn't?
5: Yeah, so I'm aware that Sweden didn't close schools, and, um, and there are a few other European countries that didn't close schools that, that um, I'm aware of. And, and Sweden, of course, uh, had a different approach for quite a long time to many other countries, and just now they're starting to to uh, look at that uh, in some detail and try and work out whether their approach was the right way or, or not and, I, and um, you and know, I have discussed this previously, I mean I, I think we won't know um, for probably 18 months, two years where, which which approach was the right approach um, with all of this sort of stuff because uh, it's not just the health consequences of course I and mean, with schools it's there's the domestic violence, the, the all the the social stuff that's been going on behind the scenes, the kids with special needs who weren't getting what they need, um, families, socioeconomic families who didn't have access to, to uh, the internet or, or good high-speed internet or didn't have the physical, emotional resources to be able to help their kids at home, you know, all that sort of stuff. And we don't really know... The, you know, I, I certainly... I did not think that we should close schools, but that was my opinion. But I, I my other opinion is that we should follow exactly what what uh, the leader saying to do it because we, we don't know all the details. Um, you know, I was concerned, very concerned about closing schools because of the, the uh, knock-on effects for kids.
1: So take us back a step. How common is COVID in kids?
5: Uh, it is. It is uncommon in kids. You know, around the world, about the, the kids have been about one to five percent of cases. So it's you know. The, the vast majority have been in adults, so not only are uh, there very few kids affected, those who are affected haven't been getting very sick either. I mean, there is one sort of just recently there's been this thing out of the out of the states in England, particularly, um, a sort of an, a new kind of constellation of symptoms that people have been seeing. With it, it looks a bit like a thing called Kawasaki, there's widespread inflammation throughout the body, and kids have been a number of kids presenting with that. But we haven't seen that in Australia. And even despite that particular group of symptoms, it's a rare thing in
1: kids. What about the risks to teachers? Because I know a lot of the concern has been that kids might have it, be asymptomatic or whatever, and then pass it on to teachers who then may pass it on to elderly relatives, etc., etc. et cetera, like the kids being a vector. Are we worried about that?
5: Well, you know, that was early on, and that was the big concern. The kids would be so-called super spreaders. And as a matter of fact... That is the case for things like influenza, for example. Kids get it and they spread it all around because uh, they, of course, are in contact with lots of people. They often snotty nose and everyone picks them up, et cetera. It's not been the, the experience um, or, or what we've seen in, in the reports uh, so far uh, with COVID. So it does not appear that kids are spreading it to adults. If anything, it's more adults spreading it to other adults. And there's actually been a, um, in, in, in New South Wales, the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance in CLRS, they do a lot of vaccine research and um, other infectious disease research. And they have done, they've got an ongoing study looking at COVID in schools in New South Wales. They reported the first part of their the study um, a few weeks, a couple of weeks ago, um, and they are looking at about 20 schools or so through New South Wales, primary and secondary, and they've had very few cases full stop in the schools and um, there, were no, there was no evidence of children infecting teachers in schools. Any of the cases seem to occur through um, other clustering around outside of the school. And that's even, here in Melbourne we've had a couple of cases in schools, that's been the case there as well it seems. So we don't think the kids are going to give it to teachers. But older adults, so if there are some older teachers or those who've got immunocompromised, they are going to be, they're the ones who we know are at risk. So I guess With schools opening, I think they need to take account for the fact that there might be some virus around with a lot of people um, milling together, albeit that kids are unlikely to have it. There are going to be other adults, parents dropping off, all that kind of stuff, other teachers. And so people who've got... Adults who've got immunocompromised or um, who are elderly, I suppose there aren't too many teachers over the age of 70, but they ought to get advice about whether they should be going to school or how to mitigate the risk.
0: Um, I think I I just, yeah, I saw a wave from (laughs) Doolittle across the studios there. Hey, uh, Spock, fantastic news about the uh, school situation. That is really good news, if that uh, turns out to be the case as it sounds it is. Um... I I reckon we should take every opportunity we can to recognize the performance of the healthcare workers during this time of covid and one of the consequences of schools closing down was any any healthcare worker uh, who had primary school kids or you know kids in the high school they now had the issue of being in high demand their hospitals their clinics etc needed them working and, uh, but their kids were now at home. I wonder if you could just kind of like personalise that experience for us. You must have heaps of colleagues in that boat.
5: Yes, well, uh, that's uh, true, Panel Beater. I, I was speaking to a colleague just the other day, and he and his wife are both doctors, um, and they've got a child in prep and one in grade three, and they, he was t- saying to them, they both Obviously, well, not obviously, but they both are insightful people who have got the resources, emotional and and financial and everything else to be able to to do everything they can for their kids. And he said, he was just describing how difficult it was with his preppy um, because they were doing online learning and one or other of he or his partner had to sit beside their son. The whole time because he, he just you know he couldn 't really deal with the app, and he couldn 't deal with all of the, the the teaching that was coming and so on he had to have everything interpreted or he needed help with everything and it's, and, and these are guys who have got their this is two parents and um, with a lot of resource, so the single parents out there who might be not just healthcare workers i mean are you frontline workers are, a lot of the healthcare workers but there' are a lot of other people who are doing all sorts of things in in this period yeah. who um, you're really under duress, and it was you know, really particularly difficult with the schools closing for them having to perhaps do, do, deal with a whole lot of stuff at home on their own.
1: On the issue of um, you know, whether you choose to send your kid or not the specifics, are there any kids that should be staying at home? Like, you know, which particular, you know, illnesses or any particular groups that you think should think a lot harder than others about going back to school?
5: Well, to be honest, little. I think that pretty much every child... Um, can go to school, is safe to go to school. As I've described, the risk in schools is unbelievably low. And the the other thing to say is that the health department have got their stuff sorted out now such that, you know, we've got... A, there's a school where there's been a case. The school's closed down within 24 hours. Some kids are being put in who are not at risk. They go to another school. Others have to stay home. And then 72 hours later, once all the testing's done and everything, it opens up again. And so I think that with both the, the low risk in the first place and the really rapid response, uh, I think kids, even those who've got immunocompromised or other, other, other pro- medical problems, are not at high risk. Having said that, if parents have got a child who's got a, a you know, severe illness, underlying illness, or, or something where it's unstable, um, where they're at high doses of steroids, for example, they're on immunocompromising drugs, uh, I reckon they still can go to school, and even the official bodies, the sort of the Children's Haematology Oncology Group, that look after all the kids with cancer in Australia, they say kids can go to school even if they're on treatment. But if parents are concerned, they should take their child to their to the specialist or call their specialist, the child specialist, and ask uh, what uh, they should do. I know the Children's Hospital in Melbourne have put out some information for parents about. Um, I can't give it the, if they if people googled www.rch.org.au, they will find there's information there about immunocompromised children, particularly in children with lung problems and heart problems. But the bottom line is that kids are safe to go to
1: school. It's so reassuring to hear you say all this because, you know, in the community, there's almost like a football team mentality about whether you're pro or anti-schools opening. And, uh, you know, the voice of reason, I sort of feel, gets lost in this sort of... um, you know, shouting for people to, you know, follow follow my team sort of uh, approach to it. And I love what you said earlier about even though sometimes your opinions might differ, you're happy to follow the leadership and the expert because all of us playing singing from the same songbook is the safest path going forward. And I also love that even if we get outbreaks in school, in fact, we expect outbreaks in school, there's a process yeah. in place. It doesn't mean going back to school's failed. It means the process is working. Is that a fair summary? Absolutely.
5: Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that we've already seen that in the last couple of days. School in Keeler Downs closed down for three days. And they're they, they really acting quickly and efficiently. And, um, and, you know, you and I were speaking to a teacher just a couple of nights ago around a bonfire, and, uh, and Sue was telling us that, um, you know, they've really got... Things in place such that in the schools, they have to do you know, all sorts of extra precautions around cleaning and gaps between lessons, and, and the teachers have um, all been schooled in see how, see how to deal with the, you know, the, the uh, risk. So I, I think it's you know, great The schools are and really safe for these kids
1: to go. Hey, we're going to have to say goodbye. Um, thanks for coming on, uh, Dr. Spock. We have an announced... See you, Dr. Spock. I'll say my quick goodbye first. Okay, see you later.
2: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.
1: Panel, it's time for us to say goodbye.
0: Time flies. What a great show!
1: Oh god, it's it's all it's it's sort of funny, isn't it? You know, just like the, you know, debate about ISO where, you know, there's some things we hate, there's some things we love. You know, I was anti, as you know, for years I've been anti getting people on the phone. I sort of am starting to like (laughs) it because you can get such a range of stuff.
0: Yeah, it's a different vibe entirely, but there's probably some upsides to it.
1: Yeah, it's 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 it is quite good. Now, in terms of thank yous, in the last uh, thirty thirty odd seconds, um, thank you for for Professor Rod Sinclair from University of Melbourne Epworth and Sinclair Dermatology for coming on and telling us all about his area.
0: The great thing about dermatology, um, Doolittle, uh, it's the one opportunity where anything that's going on in my body, I get to be called an athlete. So when I have athlete's foot. <laughs> It's just awesome. <laughs> it's my makes, big chance.
1: That makes me an athlete too. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, a lot of athletes out there.
1: Hey, what have you got next? Who's, uh, do we know what's coming up next week? Oh, it's Mel
0: um, like Practice. God knows what's going on.
1: Oh, we'll hassle here, Mel Practice. And uh, anyway, thanks um, for all the help um, with all the technological side and everything else, of course, panel beta.
0: Thank you. Uh, um, I, I, I don't know why I keep going to say your real name. Um, Doolittle.
1: It's because of Shrink the Virus. Yep. Shrink the Virus, real name, Steve Allen. Yeah. Radiotherapy, <laughs> Dr Doolittle. Hey, uh, and thanks again to Spock and CyberSoup for coming on. Thank you, everyone, for listening. It's been great having you on board, and we'll be back at the same time again next week. Thanks, folks.
0: Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.